It was winter and the roads were slick and two cars were involved in a, in a fender bender. The two drivers, a man and a woman, were each kind of accusing the other one of creating the problem. And they finally decided just to call the police. But as they waited, they began to get into conversation. And uh, they discovered both of them were single and they had other kinds of con connections. The chemistry began to kind of flow between them. And finally, the young man said, you know, maybe it was God's will that we had this accident so that we could get to know each other. And the young woman kind of said, you know, I was thinking the same thing. And they continued talking and decided to, you know, let's get in the car and sit because it's so cold. We'll wait for the police in the car. And they got in there and she said, you know, she said, uh, I happen to have a bottle of wine and some plastic cups. Why don't we celebrate, have a drink to celebrate our, our friendship with just this chance meeting? So the young man agreed. She got the wine out. And they sat back down and filled his cup. He drank his cup and she filled her cup. And he noticed that she was still holding hers as he was talking. And he said, aren't you going to drink your wine? And she said, no, no, I think I'm going to wait till the police come. And she tossed her cup out the window. Why do you do what you do? What is your motives for doing what you do? For weeks now, we've been considering the important truth that Jesus Christ is supposed to be Lord of our lives, every single area. And today, I want you to understand especially why Jesus wants us to consider him Lord of our motives. The dictionary defines motive as a reason for doing something, especially one that is, is hidden or not obvious. So let's think about this. This is going to be a little bit of a complicated message because it's got a lot of stuff on the front end, and then we'll get to our text on the back end. And hopefully you'll all still be here with me when we, we get done. The dictionary defines motive as a reason for doing something. Now think about this. If, if you live out your daily lives, why, why do we humans do what we do? Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever pondered it? What are the motives behind our behavior? I mean, why, why are you nice to people? Is it because you genuinely care about them or do you want something from them? Why do you faithfully come to church? Because you love to worship the Lord Jesus Christ? And, or is it because this is your Sunday morning habit? Why do you seek to live a moral life? Is it because you want to please God or because it serves your own purposes? Why do you praise God? Is it because you genuinely love Him? Or it was because you were raised in church and you've always been here, you've kind of been trained from childhood to worship. You see, the Bible says it's not just important that we do the right thing. We're to do the right thing with the right motives. Now, this is a tough subject because they're not always easy to identify or measure Motives, But we got to try. I think we need to do this. Here's why. The Bible tells us that God does not look at just our understanding of Bible teaching. He looks at the response of our hearts to the Bible's teaching. And there's a big difference. Proverbs 23, 7 says, As a man thinks in his heart, 
So he is. So we never want to be like those that God spoke about through the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 29, 13, where the Lord says, These people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far, far from me. So as we continue our journey through the Gospel of Luke here, we're in Luke 11, beginning with verse 14. And in this passage, what happens is Jesus' motives were called into question by some of the teachers of the law and the Pharisees. And then he, in turn, exposes their hypocritical motives and have this whole dialogue or conversation. And what I hope happens is that as we look at this, I hope all of us will be able to make sure that Jesus really is the Lord of our motives along with all these other things that we've talked about. We want to make sure that our motives and our actions consistently line up. Okay, you ready? This is a seven-pager, so <laughs> just want to let you know that. Get comfortable. Um, actually, it's uh, seven and a half pages, but anyway. Before we look at our text, what I want you to do is I want you to think with me about some of the things about motive that that you might not often ponder very much. There's really two categories of motives. First, there are legitimate motives. Motives that are, 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 you ought to do. For the Christian, the highest motive possible is that we love God. And we ought to do that. And Matthew twenty two thirty six 36 says this, uh, the, the teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And this is the first and greatest commandment. And the second, he says, is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. These are the two highest motives that you and I should aspire to as believers. But they're not the only motives for doing what is right. Sometimes we do what is right out of a sense of duty. Solomon said in Ecclesiastes 12, 13, we are to fear God, keep his commandments. Why? Because this is the whole duty of man. You know, soldiers who give their lives on a battle for their country, they, they do so out of duty, primarily. The sacrifice that they make is an expression of their love for their America, but, but it's also out of duty. Most of the time we come to worship, we, we kind of come out of duty. I mean, hopefully we come to church because we love the Lord. That would be our, 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 our we would hope that would be the case. But, you know, sometimes we come because it is a habit. It's a good habit, a habit rooted in love. But it's sustained weekly out of kind of a sense of duty. Sometimes we do the right thing out of guilt. Guilt can be seen as a negative emotion, I think. In our modern culture, in fact, feeling any kind of guilt at all is, well, that doesn't help your self-esteem, you know, so they don't encourage that much. But there's a positive guilt that does motivate us to repent. And maybe you feel guilty if you're not at work at a certain time in the morning. It can be a negative motive in a sense if you're too rigid, but it can also be a positive example and lead to having a good work ethic. And I would also list a legitimate motive as fear. Fear can be a negative emotion, yes, but it can also be positive. The Bible says in Proverbs 9.10, it is the fear of the Lord that's what? The beginning of wisdom. We can all use a lot more wisdom. The Bible also says in 1 John 4, 18, perfect love drives out fear. And the longer you and I are Christians, the more you and I must fear and respect the wrath of God 
and the more we should love and embrace the grace of God. But fear can be a powerful motive. Growing up, my friends teased me quite a bit because I did not always join them in some of their neighborhood uh, mischievous endeavors. Any of you remember that? I, mean, I know some of you. Tom, you remember that? Others? Tom's the only honest. Oh, a few nods. You know, Tom, a couple of you are honest people today. But uh, yeah, I, 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 I would patiently explain to my friends that, that you really don't understand. There's a two, couple of realities here. Reality number one is while they might look forward to going to prison someday, I did not. And then the second motive was really the one that was motivating. They did not have to go home and explain my criminal behavior to my dad. They, they didn't have to do that. My dad was a strict disciplinarian. And my friends would always say that, well, he can't go because Roy won't let him. And I said, you can call him Roy if you want to, but it's your funeral. You know, it was dad, you know. See, sometimes we're obedient to God because we love God. But then sometimes we obey because we fear the consequences of disobedience. And Romans 3.10 lists a downward spiral of human depravity and the final condition. I want you to listen to this. There is no fear of God before their eyes. There is no fear of God. So that's one category. But there's a second category of motives that we should label them. And, and, and we need to take a look at this. There are sinful motives. Sinful reasons why we do some of the things we do. Some of them are more evil than others. Here's anger, for example. Anger is, is in a flash of temper. A parent might discipline their child in a, in a way that they shouldn't. Might be the right action, maybe, but the wrong motive. James 1.19 says, Dear brothers, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Now, here's why. For a man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. So anger is, is a, a sinful motive. Pride is another sinful motive because it leads to greed and to envy and rebellious behavior. And we say, well, no one tells me, enough, tells me what to do. You know, Proverbs 16, 18 reminds us also that pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. Then there's selfishness. That's, that's, not, that's not a good motive. It's always a sinful one. Philippians 2, 3 says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. The woman I mentioned at the start of this message was kind to the guy after the accident, but her motive was to lead the police to find him at fault, not her. And then another sinful motive, and this is, this is an extremely sinful motive, is hatred. Psalm 28.3 says, those who speak cordially with their, it talks about these folks who speak cordially with their neighbors, but they harbor malice in their hearts. You see, hatred can be concealed for a while, but eventually it breaks out in evil actions and behavior. You know, a fired employee hates his supervisors and co-workers, and he returns to his place of employment with a gun and unloads his anger upon them. That is dangerously, dangerously powerful motive is hatred. Now, if the highest motive of life then is to love God, then the lowest motive of life would be to serve Satan. John 8, there's some unbelieving Jews who were giving Jesus some grief. And he finally said to them, you belong to your father, the devil, 
and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. Now, Jesus Christ wants to be the Lord of our motives as well as Lord of our behavior. Jeremiah 17, 10, I, the Lord, listen to what he says, I search the heart, I examine the mind, I want to reward a man according to his conduct, according to what his deeds deserve. So, if a person lives with the right motive and doing the right thing, then that person is referred to as a righteous person in Scripture. But a person with the wrong motive doing the right thing, when that person is considered a deceiver. And a person who consistently is deceptive, we call a hypocrite. Now, it's possible for people to have the right motive and do the wrong thing. We call those people kind of naive. Remember Robin Hood? Remember what he did? He stole from the rich, right? And gave to the poor. Now, his concern for the poor was good. That's a good thing. Robbing the rich, well, that's wrong behavior. Some parents say, well, I just love my child too much to discipline my child. You know, love's good motive. But failing to discipline our children, that's not necessarily good behavior. But the absolute worst is when a person has wrong motives that produce wrong behavior. And we call this person simply an evil person. Someone says, I know that it's wrong to steal, but I'm greedy and I'm going to do it anyway. Somebody says, I know it's wrong to lie, but it serves my purposes. I'm going to do it anyway. Matthew 15, 19 says, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, and slander. Now, by the way, this is the introduction to the sermon, <laughs> just so you know. But if our goal is to be mature in Christ, which I hope it is, then we should finally reach the point where our motives are 100% pure and that they line up with our actions and, our, and the lives that we our examples, especially we give to others. 2 Peter 3.14 says, We are to make every effort to be found, what? Spotless, blameless, and at peace with Him. Now, with that background... Our text is Luke 11, verse 14, and we pick up with it here. Jesus was driving out a demon that was mute. And when the demon left, the man who had been mute spoke, and the crowd was amazed. But some of them said, well, it's by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, he's driving out these demons. Beelzebub means lord of the flies, which doesn't seem very complimentary. Now, there are people today who discredit God's work because they are questioning the motives of God's people. That's what they did. They were questioning Jesus' motives. And they can do it to us. They can say, well, yeah, you go to church, but you just do that to network friends for your business. Or they can say, well, you give money to the church, but it's just so you, you'll be well thought of. You know, and they, there's these kind of accusations. And it's difficult to refute any accusation tied to motive because... No one can see in the heart. None of us can look inside anybody else but God alone. But verse 17 tells us that Jesus, who was God in the flesh, he knew their thoughts. He said to them, any kingdom divided against itself will be ruined. And a house divided against itself will fall. And if Satan is divided against himself, how can his kingdom 
stand. I say this because you claim that I drive out demons by Beelzebub. See, he easily answered the charges. He said, your accusation is, is really illogical. I mean, if Satan casts out Satan, that doesn't seem to be very wise. And then he said, secondly, the charges were self-incriminating. And verse 19 says, now if I drive out demons by Beelzebub, then by whom do your followers drive them out? So then they will be your judges. But if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come to you. Now Jesus is saying that when your people do this, you don't accuse them of being in league with the devil. Why do you make that accusation against me? So in verse 21, he goes on to picture Satan as a strong man guarding his kingdom. And then in verse 22, he clarifies what is really going on. He said, but when someone stronger attacks and overpowers him, he takes away the armor in which the man trusted and divides up the spoils. Now, he said this because why? Because Jesus is stronger than Satan. He wanted them to understand that. Now, we go to the last part of the chapter. This is where Jesus challenges the motives of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. He says in verse 37, when he finished speaking, a Pharisee invited him to eat with him, so he went in and reclined at the table. Now, the motive of this Pharisee, though the context, was not to get to know Jesus. He just wanted to catch him in some uh, situation that violated the Jewish law. In verse 38 says, the Pharisee, noticing that Jesus did not first wash before the meal, he was surprised. Now, this was not soap and water type washing like we would think about it. This was ceremonial washing. This was a ritual the Pharisees did just to kind of show everybody else how spiritual they were. I mean, you got to keep in mind, these guys believed that righteousness was all about the external behavior. All about the things you did, but not the internal attitude by which you do them. And verse 39 tells us, he didn't, the Lord said to him now, when this, now the new Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you're full of greed and wickedness. You foolish people, did not the one who make the outside also make the inside? You know, every time I read this passage, I think of, uh, of our mission trip we took a couple of times. One of the most challenging things to do, we visited at home, and they were so hospitable, they were so sweet but they weren't very sanitary. And, I mean, from our American perspective, let me put it that way. And the, the simple gesture of welcome was a, was a, a, a drink. It was a, they had a name for it, chai, I think. But anyway, it was kind of like warm tea mixed with sour milk. And it wasn't all that bad, but the problem was that everyone would drink from the same cup. They just passed it around. And... Uh, the cups had been rinsed in muddy water. Long to add that. Forgot to add that. Anyway, you kind of get the idea. But Jesus was challenging this Pharisee, who was preoccupied with looking good on the outside, while the inside was full of corruption and greed. In verse forty-two, Jesus goes on. He says, "Woe to you, Pharisees, because you give God a tenth of your mint and rue and all other kinds of garden herbs, but you neglect justice and the love of God." You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. Can you kind of picture what's happening here? Jesus kind of laying into him, and he's not done yet. Verse 43, Woe to you, Pharisees, because you love the most important seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace. 
And he's saying, your motive is not to see justice done or to help the poor. Your motive is you want everybody to see you and think that you're generous or that you're pious. You're preoccupied with your own reputation. Which, by the way, in case you're new and didn't notice, that's one of the reasons we don't pass an offering plate, though there's several really good ones. But that's the reason we don't pass the offering plate. Um, It kind of takes the ego out of everything, in a sense. Uh, Nobody's looking to see what you give. You don't have to kind of, you ever give an offering, kind of hold it in your hand like this and put it in, you know. And uh, I had a really good idea for an offering plate but I've never got anybody yet to, to support it. it was a, it's a high-tech offering plate. And as it was passed down the road, what happens is, is that if uh, you put a $20 bill or something in the offering plate, a little bell would go off. <laughs> and uh, the, the larger the bill, the louder the bell. <laughs> and if you put in just change, you know, like your kids have, you sometimes give your kids change. Sometimes the adults will put the change in. Then a little door opens in the bottom. All the change goes out onto the floor. <laughs> and since we have no carpet, it'd be great to do here. But, but um, you know, and, and, then, and if you put nothing in it at all, a little camera would take your picture. <laughs> and you know, that's doable. The technology is here. We, we, we could do that. But, but no, the reason we don't do that is because the elders lead the church and they don't let the preacher do stuff like that. And, uh, but they made a decision a long time ago. Let's follow what the Bible says. Let's see what Scripture says. In Jesus' day, there was a box placed right outside the temple. And when he went into worship, you passed the box, put money in if you wished. There was a woman that put very little in and she gave so much because it's all she had. You know, the Scriptures talk about this experience there. And, uh, but it was between them and God. They didn't have other people involved. It's private. It takes the ego out of it. And as you come and go here at the church, what you've seen probably are boxes that we have out in the, in the fellowship hall. And you give as you want to. You see, God sees the heart. He's much more interested in our motives, why we give, what's going on within, not just the giving itself. And by the way, not just for giving, but for everything we do. In verse 44, Jesus went on again with this uh, woe to the Pharisee thing. He said, woe to you because you're like unmarked graves, which men walk over without knowing it. The message paraphrase puts it this way. People walk over that nice grassy surface, never suspecting the rot and the corruption that's six feet under. And in this section, Jesus uses the word hypocrite or hypocrisy 20 different times to describe the motives of the teachers and of the law and of the Pharisees. Now, I want to leave you with four practical lessons. Well, let me put it this way. Let me leave you with four practical lessons for every one of you here today that wants Jesus to be the Lord of your motives. Okay, does that qualify that good? All right, number one, you got to examine your motives. The Apostle Paul said that when you take communion, what are you supposed to do? First, Examine yourselves, and then you eat of the bread and drink of the cup. An honest evaluation of why you do what you do can be painful at times, just like an x-ray can be bothersome perhaps, but it can reveal a hidden problem that needs to be dealt with. I read of a Chicago preacher who for a while he carried a billboard around the city 
And the billboard said, just follow Jesus. Just as simple as it could be. But he'd get home after it was over with. He was wore out. He'd, he'd try to sleep, have a restless sleep. And then he'd go out the next day and he'd carry his billboard all over Chicago. He'd come in one night and he's, he just laid there and he thought, you know, I'll bet that there's not another preacher in all of Chicago willing to do what I've been doing. And then the Holy Spirit suddenly convicted him that he realized he was proud of his humility. Yeah. You ever been proud of your humility? Yes. You ever ask yourself, why did you come to church today, really? Is it about you or is it about Jesus? Why do you drive yourself to excel at your job? You want to be a good employee or do you want to be regarded by coworkers in a certain light? Why do you give your time to serve the church? Is it to honor God or to be seen by others as sacrificial or pious? And yet we sing Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. But then we go home thinking about what a good person we are compared to those who sleep in on Sunday morning. See the problem? Examine your motives. Number two, just simply determine to be, to be as authentic as you possibly can be. Be authentic. 2 Corinthians 2.17, in that passage, the Apostle Paul says this, Unlike so many, we do not peddle the word of God for profit. On the contrary, in Christ, we speak before God with sincerity like men sent from God. You know, as pastors, you know, Nick and I seek to please God. And, and you know what? Sorry, we don't seek to please you. Is that bad of us, you think? You know, when you preach the gospel, it's supposed to be good news. And we want to preach that good news. But as pastors, our first thing is that we have to stand before God and be faithful in our, not only our communication of what the scriptures say, but also in our living those out, living out those things that we talk about. You know, as pastors, we can't say, well, we'll pray for you, brother, and then not pray for you. We can't do that. As pastors, we have to guard against doing things just to be seen by others. In the next chapter, Luke 12, Jesus said these sobering words, Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. There's nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not one day be made known. What you have said in the dark will be heard in the daylight. What you've whispered in the ear in the inner rooms will be proclaimed from the roofs. Wow, that's a scary verse, isn't it? Wow. One day everything is going to be disclosed. And so we need to pray to God that he will enable us to be authentic. And if not, we need to pray that God will help us be real ourselves right now. And then number three, determine to do the right thing regardless. Sometimes when we start examining motives, we can kind of get discouraged and kind of quit because we know we don't all have pure motives all the time. But the right action with a less than ideal motive is better than the wrong action. In fact, as someone has said, if you act the way you wish you felt, Eventually, you'll feel the way that you act. I don't know if that's too simplistic, but I do know Jesus said this in 
John 14, 23, he said, if anybody loves me, he will obey my teaching. My father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Wow. And let me add just one more, number four, purify your hearts, purify your hearts. I want to close with Luke eleven thirty four through 36. Your, your eye is the lamp of your body. So when your eyes are good, your whole body also is full of light. But when your eyes are bad, your body also is full of darkness. So see to it then that the light within you is not darkness. Therefore, if your whole body is full of light and no part of it dark, it'll be completely lighted as when the light of a lamp shines on you. You know, just as, as our physical bodies are made up of the food that we take in. Did you ever heard that? Did you know that? You are what you eat. Have you ever heard that? I am grateful that's not in the Bible, you know? <laughs> it is really, I, I've looked for it. I can't find it. You are what you eat. It, but, I, you know, but the principle here, just as your physical body is made up of food, so your spirit is made up of the things that you feed your spirit. And if we feed our hearts on the darkness of this world, then we're going to be dark. Our motives, our, our ways of thinking are not going to be clear. And there's always going to be a battle going on inside of you between your thought life and what you know your thought life should be. So saturate your heart with the words and thoughts of Christ. And the life of Jesus will shine through us and will always want to do the right things. And our motive will be lined up with God's will for our lives. Matthew 5, 8 says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are so grateful to you for loving us. We can be so messed up, even as we come here to church, with wrong thoughts, wrong attitudes, and, and wrong motives as to what we're doing. But Father, we're so grateful to you that you sent Jesus Christ, not only to save us, but to show us how a human being ought to live. A human being that is full of the Holy Spirit and the Father. Help us, Lord, to take this whole series, but especially this sermon, seriously. Because it is important that we do what we do for the right reasons, even if nobody else in the whole universe knows exactly why. Because you know. You know all things. And thank you for loving us and encouraging us and providing us with the power that we need, your Holy Spirit, that we can live the life that we want everybody to think we're living. But more important, we can live the life that will glorify you. Thank you, Lord Jesus. You raised the bar high, but you have reached down and taken our hand and helped us reach that bar. In Jesus, your wonderful name we pray. Amen.